What is up, my fellow nerds? Uh, welcome to the first real episode of this podcast. Uh, for this episode, we're going to focus on embryo, specifically for the upper limb development, okay? All right, so here we go. We've got gastrulation. It's going to establish three germ layers and form the primitive streak at the epiblast surface. Epiblast cells are going to migrate to that primitive streak and invaginate, displacing the hypoblast, and that's going to be our embryonic endoderm. More epiblast cells lie between the embryonic endoderm and epiblast surface, and that's the formation of mesoderm. Any leftover epiblast surface cells is going to be our ectoderm. So epiblast cells are the source of all germ layers here. Now, for our upper limb, that muscle tissue is going to come from the mesoderm. So it's going to start as a thin sheet of mesoderm germ cells on each side of the midline. At day 17, the midline cells are going to proliferate and become paraaxial mesoderm, which is a thickened tissue plate. Cells of the mesoderm are going to thin laterally, which is going to become the lateral plate mesoderm. At day 19, that lateral plate mesoderm is going to split into two things, the somatic parietal mesoderm, which is on our amniotic side, and the splanchnic visceral mesoderm, which is going to be on the side of our yolk sac. We do also have an intermediate mesoderm between the lateral plate and the paraaxial mesoderm, and that's going to differentiate into urogenital structures. So we're going to focus a lot more on that intermediate mesoderm uh, when unit three rolls around. So what's most important to keep in mind here? Uh, the mesoderm, the paraaxial mesoderm is close to our midline. The intermediate is going to connect paraaxial and lateral. And then that lateral plate mesoderm has two splits. One is that parietal somatic mesoderm and the other is that visceral splanchnic mesoderm. For the upper limb, we more so want to focus on the parietal somatic split of the lateral plate and the paraaxial mesoderm. So our paraaxial mesoderm is going to give rise to somitomeres, which give rises to somites. Somites carry significance because the number of somites present uh, is going to be what determines our embryonic age. So at the start of week four, that somite ventral region is going to migrate to surround the neural tube and the nodal cord, and collectively it's going to form uh, the sclerotome. And that sclerotome gives rise to the vertebrae and the ribs. So, further sectioning of the somites, we've got dorsomedial ventrolateral edges. And those are going to form muscle precursor cells. And then the cells between these two edges are going to form dermatome. So somites, they're going to give rise to sclerotome, muscle precursor cells, and dermatome. Those muscle precursor cells are going to migrate beneath the dermatome and create dermomyotome. The dermatome migrates beneath the ectoderm, which forms dermis. Some cells of the ventrolateral edge are going to migrate to the adjacent parietal layer. 
Then we've got our lateral somatic frontier, and we've got two portions of this here. We have abaxial, which is the migrated cells of ventrolateral edge plus the parietal layer, and that is going to give rise to abdominal wall and limb muscles. So abaxial, abdominal wall, and the limb muscles. Our second part of the lateral somatic frontier is primaxial. These are the cells that surround the neural tube and the majority of the myotome. They're gonna give rise to the back, shoulder, girdle, and intercostal muscles. So primaxial, back, shoulder, girdle, and intercostal muscles. Our take home here is that the somites are gonna give rise to the sclerotome which goes to vertebrae and ribs. Muscle precursor cells are going to be found in dorsomedial and ventrolateral edges of the somites. And the dermatome is going to give rise to the dermis. Primaxial is going to be the back, shoulder girdle, and intercostal mus muscles. And that abaxial domain is going to give rise to the abdominal wall and limb muscles. So now we're going to talk a little bit about uh, gene expression. So as we know, that's DNA to RNA to protein. And that's going to be regulated by transcription factors such as enhancers and silencers. So what's cool about this? Not much, but... <laughs> We've got the Hox genes, which is the homeobox DNA binding domain. These Hox genes are gonna specify cranial versus caudal axis formation. And it's gonna be modulated by retinoic acid or RA. And uh, the three prime end is going to be the most responsive to that uh, retinoic acid. So at the end of week four of our development, we should have the limb buds visible from ventrolateral uh, body of the wall. So we're going to see forelimb appearance first, followed by the hind limbs in one to two days. So let's talk the upper limb development specifics here. Our somites are going to give rise to the muscle tissue, uh, specifically the somites of the paraaxial mesoderm. And then we've got the dermatome going to dermis, sclerotome going to tendons, the parietal layer is going to bones and connective tissue, and then the epithelial layer comes from the ectoderm. So that last portion there is pretty much our take-home message here. So that paraxial mesoderm is the somites giving rise to the muscles, dermis, and tendons. The parietal layer of the lateral plate mesoderm is gonna give rise to the connective tissue and bones, and the ectoderm gives rise to the epithelial layer. All right, so now we're gonna talk about innervation. We've got epaxial, which is the back muscles. That's innervated by dorsal posterior rami. Then we've got hypaxial, which is the limb muscles, and those are going to be innervated by ventral anterior rami. So 
Limb formation is going to occur via endochondrial ossification. Uh, we're going to start with the limb bud, which we know is visible when? It's going to be visible at the end of week four. That limb bud consists of mesenchymal core, which comes from the parietal layer, which is a split off of what? The lateral plate mesoderm. So that mesenchymal core of the limb bud is going to condense and differentiate into chondrocytes. And those chondrocytes are going to form the cartilaginous model of the prospective bone. Now, the ossification is going to begin at the end of the embryonic period. What's the embryonic period? It's going to be the three to eight week period. Remember, the one to two week period is the uh, germinal stage. And then that ninth week and on is known as our fetal period. So, the primary ossification centers, those are going to be formed by blood vessels that invade the center of that cartilaginous model made by chondrocytes, and it's going to restrict the proliferating chondrocytes to the bone end, our epiphyses. epiphyses. Um, then we've got the chondrocytes of the shaft, which is going to be our diaphyses or diaphysis. It's not plural, it's diaphysis. Um, and that's going to undergo hypertrophy and apoptosis, which will mineralize into the surrounding matrix. So what's the point here? At birth, the diaphysis is completely ossified. The epiphyses are still cartilaginous. Why? Well, for growth. We don't want to be the same size as a newborn baby our entire lives. So... At full length, the uh, epiphyseal plate disappears and the epiphyses unite with the shaft of the bone. So, now we're going to talk a little bit about the positioning of our limb. So, remember the Hox genes are going to re regulate the cranial to caudal axis. So... Growth now needs to be regulated along the proximal distal axis, antero posterior axis, and dorso ventral axis. So that's that's a mouthful. Uh, limb outgrowth is going to be initiated by TBX5 and FGF10 in the forelimb by that lateral plate mesoderm. What is lateral plate mesoderm split into? It's going to split into that parietal somatic uh, division and the visceral splanchnic division. Which one is of most importance here for our upper limb development? That's going to be the parietal somatic division, right? So our ectoderm at the distal border is going to thicken to form what's known as the apical ectodermal ridge or AER. And AER is going to express FGF4 and 8, which is responsible for the progress zone. So as far as FGF goes, we're getting smaller here, right? Because we got the outgrowth initiated by TBX5 and FGF10, 
Well, once we've got that AER, it's now FGF4 and 8. So the cells at the proximal progress zone, they're going to become farther away from the AER as the limb grows and will lose influence of FGF. So the division is going to slow and differentiation is going to begin. So the main point here is that proximal to distal growth is going to be controlled by the AER. Now a little uh, clinical side note here is that the AER is disrupted by a medication known as uh, thalidomide, um, popularized for uh, counteracting nausea during pregnancy, kind of taken back in like the 60s and some foreign countries and stuff. Um, now we got two more axes uh, here to focus on. We've got our anterior-posterior axis. And then uh, the limb patterning for that axis is going to be regulated by ZPA, or what's known as the zone of polarizing activity. That's going to be a cell cluster at the posterior border. So that is going to produce retinoic acid. That should ring a bell. What else does retinoic acid modulate? Our Hox genes, right? Which do what? specify cranial to caudal axis. So retinoic acid is involved in multiple axis expression control, but at the AP axis, it initiates expression of sonic hedgehog, which is an AP axis regulator. So when asked what controls or regulates the AP axis, we have three things. We have the ZPA, we have retinoic acid, and we have sonic hedgehog. Now cells near the ZPA are gonna form the pinky and the ones away from it are gonna form the thumb. And then uh, a special note is that digit duplication is going to arise from having two ZPA centers instead of one. Now that other axis that we need to focus on is that dorsoventral axis. That's gonna be regulated by BMP or bone morphogenetic proteins in the ventral ectoderm. That BMP induces expression of transcription factor EN1 or engrailed 1. EN1 represses WNT7A expression, restricting it to dorsal limb ectoderm. WNT7A induces expression of transcription factor LMX1 which specifies cells to be dorsal, effectively establishing dorsoventral components. So what's the short version of this that we got to get down? BMP induces EN1 expression. EN1 expression represses WNT7A expression. WNT7A expression induces LMX1 expression, which is going to give dorsal specification. So we got four things here. What's dorsal? What's ventral? Dorsal is going to be WNT7A that induces LMX1. Ventral is going to be BMP and it's going to induce EN1. So dorsal-ventral communication is occurring between EN1 and WNT7A. So what's going to be our take home here? Our proximal distal axis is going to be controlled 
by that apical ectodermal ridge or AER. Our cranial caudal or lateral medial is going to be controlled by the zone of polarizing activity. And then that dorsoventral and anterior posterior axis is going to be controlled by the expression of WNT7A, which induces expression of LMX1 on the dorsal side. So now we're going to talk about a just common overall pattern that you should really have down. Um, it's pretty obvious here. Uh, the ventral anterior compartment is going to contain our flexors. Our dorsal posterior compartment is going to contain our extensors. Now there are some exceptions here. I'm going to give you a chance to think about it. Can you name one? What's going to be important here? An important exception to remember here in that upper limb. That's going to be our brachioradialis. It's going to come from the posterior compartment, but it's a flexor of the forearm when mid-pronation. So posterior compartment, but a flexor, therefore an exception, because posterior compartment contains extensors, generally. So now we're going to talk about some deformities of the proximal to distal growth. So you think proximal, proximal distal, what should immediately pop in your head? It should be the AER. So apoptosis is going to occur in four areas of the AER to create our five digits. What does the AER arise from? Ectoderm. And what does it express? FGF, which is going to be responsible for our progress zone. Disruption of the AER apoptosis is going to be what results in birth defects or those deformities, right? So we've got quite a few here that we're just going to go through the terminology on real quick. We've got uh, syndactyly, which is going to be the fusion of two or more fingers. We've got polydactyly, which is going to be the presence of extra digits. And then a uh, cool note about that. Didn't know this, but my P3 small group leader, Dr. Cobbs, actually had some extra digits that she had removed. So if you're ever bored, you know, just ask her about that or something. It's pretty cool. So I'm just going to associate polydactyly with Dr. Cobbs in my head. <laughs> uh, then we've got uh, Amelia, which is going to be the complete absence of one or more extremities. Meromilia is going to be the partial absence of one or more extremities. And then we've got phocomilia, which is going to be a form of meromilia where the long bones are absent and rudimentary hands and feet are attached to the trunk by small, irregularly shaped bones. Phocomilia is a common side effect of that drug thalidomide that I mentioned earlier with, from that AER disruption. So thalidomide was the anti-nauseant taken around four to six weeks of gestation, which is pretty unfortunate because that's the most sensitive period for the induction of limb defects. Just in general, the embryonic period from three to eight weeks is going to be a very defect-sensitive uh, time period of growth. 
And then our last term we've got here is uh, brachydactyly, which is going to be shortened digits. So the AER is non-responsive here. So uh, I think brachydactyly, break, I don't know, it's broken off, so therefore the digits are shorter. I don't know if that's going to make sense or not to anyone else other than me, but it's just what pops in my head. So brachydactyly, shortened digits. Now, we're going to talk about how it develops along a nerve route here. So the upper limb is going to develop along the C5 to T1 segments. Does that segment ring a bell to anyone? Should, because it forms the roots of the brachial plexus. Pretty important bowl of spaghetti talking about right there. So, our innervation... The anterior division of our limb is going to be musculocutaneous, median, and ulnar nerves. That posterior division is going to be our radial nerve. So notice that the axillary nerve is not mentioned here, right? And that's our last uh, terminal branch of the brachial plexus. Well, the axillary nerve is it's going to go to the deltoid and teres minor. And those aren't technically muscles in the upper limb, but they do still act on the upper limb. So they're not going to, the axillary nerve is not going to innervate anything of that upper limb. But, uh, you know, side little anatomy quiz here. What is going to be the way that that teres minor acts on the limb? It's going to do that through lateral arm rotation, right? And what about that deltoid? What's it going to be responsible for? Primarily going to be responsible for the abduction from 15 to 90 degrees operating in that frontal plane. So then we've got a dermatome, which is going to be a unilateral area of skin supplied by a single spinal nerve. Our myotome is a unilateral mass of muscle supplied by a single spinal nerve. So myotome, muscle, dermatome, skin, right? So dermatome maps have been created to indicate the typical pattern of innervation. So a single lesion of a nerve rarely results in numbness of a skin area for that nerve in the dermatome map. And that's because fibers uh, conveyed by adjacent nerves overlap almost completely, which is going to provide kind of a, a double protection or double coverage, right? So the rule of thumb here is that at least two adjacent spinal nerves or posterior roots must be interrupted to produce a discernible numbness. So we've got kind of two chunks of um, data here that we're going to need to, well, frankly, just straight memorize. So there are those are going to be the dermatomes and the cutaneous nerves. We're going to start with the dermatomes. There are seven portions of this here. So it's going to be a little broader than the brachial plexus, actually. We're talking C3 to T2 here. And remember that brachial plexus is going to run C5 to T1. Uh, it could be prefixed or postfixed, you know, with a little extra C4 or T2 help and some sort of anatomical variations. But we're not going to worry about that right now. So let's get down to talking dermatomes. So C3 and C4 is going to be responsible for the region at the base of the neck and extending laterally over the shoulder. 
C5 is going to be the lateral aspect of the arm, that superior aspect of an abducted arm. Abducted arm, what muscle should ring in your mind here? Initially, that supraspinatus and then that deltoid muscle taking over. So next, we've got the C6 dermatome, which is going to be lateral forearm and thumb. And you got to think about all of this from anatomical position, right? So you should be supinated when looking at your hand and trying to remember this or your arm and trying to remember this. So moving on, we've got C7, and that's going to be the middle and ring fingers and uh, center of the posterior aspect of the forearm. Then we've got C8, which is going to go the little finger, and that's going to be uh, the medial side of the hand and forearm as well. So kind of from basically C6, 7, and 8, we're running laterally to medially. And we're talking more specific about either the forearm or the hand. That C5 is still a lateral aspect, but it's of the arm, nothing lower. So T1 is going to be the medial aspect of the forearm and the inferior arm. And T2, this one... I thought was kind of odd being listed at the end because it's actually kind of closest to the trunk. It's the most proximal region that it's going to. Uh, so T2 is going to be responsible for that medial aspect of the superior arm and axilla. So the innervation in this area is of the medial aspect of the limb by the upper thoracic T1 to T3 spinal segments. And this is going to be consistent with the experience of uh, heart pain referred to that area. Uh, so just another little side note there. All right, now lastly, we're gonna go through our cutaneous nerves and that's gonna have nine different categories. So first up, we've got our supraclavicular nerve. It's gonna be from C3 to C4 and then it goes from cervical plexus to the skin over the clavicle and superolateral aspect of pectoralis major. So then we go to the superior lateral uh, cutaneous nerve of the arm. Pay attention to whether I'm saying arm or forearm here because that's important. So we've got the superior lateral portion for the arm. And that's going to be C5 to C6 from the terminal branch of the axillary nerve to the skin over the lower part of this muscle and onto the lateral side of the midarm. Next, we're going to have the inferior lateral cutaneous nerve of the arm. That's also from C5 to C6, just like our superior lateral, except this one's going to be from the radial nerve or posterior cutaneous to the skin over the inferolateral aspect of the arm. Now we're talking about that posterior cutaneous just mentioned, and this is going to be of the arm as well. And that's going to be C5 to C8. And then it's going to go from the radial nerve in the axilla to the skin on the posterior arm as far as the olecranon, aka elbow. So now we're moving on kind of more to the forearm. We've got one in the arm later still coming up, but uh, for now, going down the list, we've got the posterior cutaneous of the forearm. So just a note here, there's going to be a posterior for the arm and the forearm. And then the inferior is just for the arm. The lateral is going to be for the forearm. So back to that posterior cutaneous forearm nerve. It's going to go from C5 to C8, which is the same as for the posterior portion of the arm. Except now we're 
going from the radial nerve with the lateral cutaneous of the arm to the posterior forearm of the wrist. Now we've got the lateral cutaneous nerve of the forearm from C6 to C7. And it's gonna go from the terminal branch of the musculotaneous nerve to the skin of anterolateral forearm to wrist. Now we've got the medial cutaneous of the forearm from C8 to T1. And that's gonna go from the medial cord of the brachial plexus to the skin of the anteromedial aspect of the wrist. Now that last one in the region of the arm is gonna be our medial cutaneous nerve of the arm and that's C8 to T2. So the difference there is that portion that's in the arm is to T2, the portion that's in the forearm is to T1. They're both gonna be from the medial cord of the brachial plexus to the skin except the one of the arm is going to be going to the skin of the medial aspect of the distal arm. And then lastly, we've got our intercostal brachial nerve. Kind of ironic because it's most proximal, really. Um, well, that and the supraclavicular. But the intercostal brachial nerve is going to come off T2, and it's going to go from the second intercostal nerve to the skin of the axilla and medial aspect of proximal arm. So overall here on our cutaneous nerves, nine of them, we've got four in the arm, superior lateral, inferior lateral, posterior cutaneous, and medial cutaneous. Then we've got three in the forearm, lateral cutaneous, medial cutaneous, and our posterior cutaneous. And then the other two are gonna be the super, uh, supraclavicular and the intercostobrachial. So really when looking at the dermatomes and the cutaneous nerves, definitely way better to look at a picture or imagine, map it out by you know holding your arm out and try to draw those borders because really these words are just pretty big mouthful. All right, and uh, that's going to complete the first episode of this podcast uh, on our upper limb development for embryo. So thanks for hanging in, and hopefully some of that information sticks, you know, to the brain.